Thank you for singing the gospel to each other. That was a great song for us to transition into our portion of the service where we hear from God's Word. And so I would invite you to take your Bibles, if you um, did not bring one, um, to Daniel 8. If you didn't bring one, there should be one in front of you in the chairs in front of you, and you can turn to Daniel 8. And uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word uh, at home, or you have a friend that you know needs a copy, please take those Bibles with you in the chairs and give them um, as a gift, or use them yourself to read. And we want you to know, as we always do, try to remind you here at Grace that uh, everything that we do and say is founded on the Word of God, and it comes from there, not from our thoughts. And the power rests in God's Word, not in the power of the, the one presenting. And so hopefully you see this morning um, where... God's Word says the things that are being spoken from uh, this pulpit. It's such a great uh, opportunity and privilege to be a part of the service this morning and to hear the testimonies of those different individuals, and we're so grateful for them. Make sure that you congratulate them afterwards and, um, and give them a handshake if you haven't introduced yourself to them and uh, celebrate with them uh, this morning. In Daniel chapter 8, we're looking at the theme of persistence. And some of you know this word better than other people, um, maybe. Persistence is this firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Does that describe anyone's children? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe I like just at a time. Uh, as I was thinking about it this morning, I was thinking, persistence describes my kids when I say no at times. Right? It doesn't matter how many times I say no, it doesn't matter how many ways I say no, it doesn't matter how many reasons I give for the no, my kids are, can be persistent, not all the time, but they can be very persistent when it's something that they want, and I can be the same way uh, at times myself. Persistence is continuing on when it's difficult, when things are difficult, when there's opposition. Seeing a goal ahead of you and going for that goal regardless of what comes against you. Like when trying to start a new habit in New Year's in January, and that very first day, if you're trying to cut anything, there's those temptations all the time uh, to forsake that resolution and to give in and do something else. But like working out or cutting a snack, waking up early to have to spend time with God, all of those things require persistence. Look to 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul shares all the things that he went through. And we think of the shipwrecks that he went through, the imprisonments that he went through, the opposition that he went through in every city that he went to. And if you read that big list in 2 Corinthians 11, what carried Paul through as he shares in his epistles? It was the grace of God that carried him through. To be persistent through trials. And we're going to read this morning about a coming trial for God's people in which they're going to need to persist. They're going to need to press on. They're going to need to continue in their course of action, being faithful to God and in their relationship with Him in spite of difficulty. And this is not a lesson any different from what you and I experience on this side of heaven. This defines and describes our lives as we live them. And so we look to it this morning for encouragement and for hope in, in Daniel chapter 8. And so I want to read for you Daniel chapter 8, and you're hearing verse 1 through 14 this morning. That's our text. Follow along if you would. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. 
And I saw in the vision, and when I, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And I raised my eyes and, I, and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host of the, and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the burnt offering because of transgression." And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. This is the word of the Lord. You may read that this morning and hear that, and there may be a lot of questions about what is all of that stuff. And hopefully, as we walk through this, you're going to see, and later next week when Pastor Jeff shares on the interpretation of this dream, you're going to see how in exact detail these things were fulfilled. And so these things were specific events that were going to happen uh, to God's people and against God's people. Human nature anxiously desires to know the future. If I told you right now that you would be able to foresee the events of your life over the next few years playing out, and I were to say, I invite you to the Cineplex in town here tonight to see, and everyone will see how your life is going to unfold in the next five years. I'm guessing, if you believe me, you'd be there. If I could be trusted, you would be there, because you would want to know we anxiously desire to know the future. On the contrary, though, unless God intervenes with divine revelation, an outline of the future of our lives is never revealed to us. It's a complete and total mystery to us. No number of horoscopes will tell you what your future holds. No amount of palm readers and no tarot card readers will ever be able to tell you what your future is going to look like apart from the revelation of God. It's shut off from us. It's God's wisdom. And it's in God's wisdom that he doesn't share that all with us. So why is it that the future is shut off from our view? 
you'd want to know the future rather than the past so that you can change it, right? We know that we can't, but we think that we probably could. If given the opportunity, we could change the future. We could change what God has ordained. And we fooled ourselves into thinking at times that we can change what God has ordained. And if only we knew, then maybe things would be different. So why is the future shut off from us? Is it not because the present is enough to occupy your talents, your time, and your resources right now? You don't need to know what's coming because there's enough for you to do as, as a believer and a, with faith in Christ. There's enough for you to do right now regardless of what is coming. There's enough in the present to occupy our time and our efforts. People who are tempted to regulate their movements based on what the future is going to hold will always be distracted, speculative, and of no use to the war that's going on in their own life because they're focusing on what's coming and on what needs to change for what's coming. We serve a God who has a great enemy who loves misdirection in order to win against God's people, against the saints, and he's been doing it forever. And so to serve our God rightly in this present hour it takes all of our strength. It takes all the strength that we have and all the strength that we have from God and the grace of God. Some of you hate surprises. I don't know if that's you or not, but you hate surprises. My wife, Bailey, hates surprises. She always has. I don't think she actually hates them. I think she just says that because I did it. I did surprise her once and then, she, you know, she liked it. And it was so, <laughs> so, but I was, she didn't know it was coming. So I guess, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But one of the things I did, maybe if you know us, you've heard this story a little bit, but one of the things I did when we were dating is um, I tried to surprise her. It was her first time flying home from Ontario in a plane by herself. And if you're a female, that's scary. It, when you have four kids, flying home by yourself is amazing. Like, that's awesome. So when we go on conferences and stuff, it's like, great. I don't have, you know, the kids beside me trying to keep them from kicking the person in front of them. And uh, she was flying home by herself, and she was um, certainly a little bit reserved about doing that. And uh, I would decide I was going to surprise her and get a, a ticket on that plane and go with her for the week of her March break or whatever it was, reading week, and we were going to go together and I'd spend it with her. So I talked to her dad and he bought the tickets, bought the seats beside each other so that was all set up. Um, I, she was visiting, we drove her to the airport, she was, she's from Toronto, Nova Scotia, so we were in Ontario and uh, had all my stuff, my luggage in, a, in the trunk of the van and there was a black garbage bag over it so it looked like garbage. And uh, she didn't pick up on that. That was the first clue right there. Um, she didn't pick up on that. And then my mom drove us as well, but she didn't pick up on that. You know, I just, I said, yeah, I'm not comfortable driving in Toronto, but I mean, I needed a way to not have the vehicle there. So, um, so my mom drove us and we uh, got to the airport, got her in there and I played it off as if I was going home, goodbye for the week. And uh, then I quickly did like a closet change and got my luggage out and went and sat in a different terminal almost missed it because they switched the terminals and that wouldn't have been good. <laughs> I was sitting like, you know, a few, uh, you know how Toronto is when you take those flare flights, you got to go to the very end and I was not at the very end just waiting for that final call. Anyways, it got switched and, and anyways, I got on the plane, I walk on and she's not expecting anything the whole time and I walk up to her, she's texting me how she's in, you know, the edge and there's like, who's going to be this stranger sitting beside me and it's like, oh, don't worry, you know, I'm sure he'll be great. And, uh, when, <laughs> I didn't say that, but I should have. But, and then we, I, pull, I walked up there and uh, just to look on her face, like, are you kidding me? 
you're like, are you, I don't know what she would tell you what she was thinking. I don't know what she was thinking, but, um, but she was surprised to see me nonetheless. And uh, she says she hates surprises, but, uh, and I will tell you that it's an indictment on me that that's not what our life is like every day or every month. So that was like a one, a one off for me. I got to do a better job of that. But um, some of you hate surprises. Some of you would, that, that wouldn't be exciting for you or surprises aren't exciting. You like to know the future, right? And not knowing the future is part of the joy of living the life that God has put, uh, given us to live. Not knowing the future. Right? When you're driving through the Rocky Mountains or across Canada and you see the scenery pop up for the first time that you've never seen before, as long as it's not a moose and you're going to you know, hit them, it's exciting or it can be exciting. And there's joy in seeing all of those things as they pop up in life. Is it not the kindness then of God to prepare his people for the future, for what the trouble that they're going to endure. When he does actually reveal to them what's coming or what the results of the way they're living is going to be, is that not then the kindness of God? And in our passage this morning, that's what God's doing. He's revealing a specific event in history that's going to affect his people, the Jewish people. And there are times then when it's important for God's people to know and prepare for what they're going to face. It's not as if we just pretend like nothing is going to happen in the future. We actually do need to know and consider and prepare for what God might bring or might be saying is coming. Why else write a whole chapter in Daniel 8 on these things? If God is sovereign and in control, why write an entire vision and, and spill ink over a chapter just to remind us once again that He's in control? I think it's this. We've said this at the beginning of chapter 7. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. You may have faith and believe. And so there's a few things I want us to see this morning. This first thing is the certainty of the future. The vision in, verse, in the first four verses, the vision comes from God, and it is God only who knows and who controls the future. And the Bible, everything that the Bible says about the past is true. Everything the Bible says about the future is true. It, because of passages like this that speak so specifically of prophecy and we watch them in world history get fulfilled. And therefore, what the Bible says about you and me is true. And Daniel sees himself in Susa, which is the enemy territory, the winter residence of the kings at the time. And this is the same place that Esther and Jeremiah would have lived if you know your Bible history and what we have in this passage is not a dream, but a vision. So Daniel's not lying in bed and he has his dream. It's a vision that he has presumably while he is awake. And it's a vision that is certainly frightening for him a little bit as we get into in the next verses next week. And what does Daniel see? He sees a ram, as we read, with one horn and the one grows up greater than the other. It reminds us, if you've been tracking with us through Daniel, of the visions that have already come before us. And certainly the one in chapter 7 of the bear who is raised up on his side. It kind of sounds like um, similar to that where one horn comes up, the one that comes up second raises up greater than the other one, as the text says. And briefly, if we were to look ahead in Daniel, we would see that, and I will at least allude to this without sharing the rest of the interpretation. These are human kingdoms. That's what Daniel is speaking about. And Jeff is going to share more on that next week as we walk through the rest of the book. But what do we see about this ram that he charges north, west, south? The kingdoms that he ruled and reigned and conquered over the north, the west, and the south. And this kingdom, as the text says, was an invincible kingdom. 
one that was great and from which no one could be rescued from its power. And this is an extended period of history. As we look back on the fulfillment of this vision, verse 4 is speaking of 200 years of history, of human history lived out in one little verse. And this is the history to which God places His people and He calls His people to live. This is their home address, to live in this kingdom and be a part of this where there is this kind of ruler. And it's no different for us today. God has placed you and I in human history where we are for a reason, with a plan, with a purpose for it all, but for a reason. He doesn't make mistakes with where He's placed you, with what He allows you and me to go through. Those aren't accidents. It's all planned and it's all purposeful. And it's all used, according to Romans 8, for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purposes. And that's a great promise for us. So notice that the ram became great. And the world tells you that greatness is power and the ability to rule and absolute um, authority. And what does Jesus say when He comes and He rules? And He speaks of His kingdom. He says His kingdom is great because of its goodness, because of its service, because of its sacrifice. So we see first the certainty of the future because it's God who reveals the vision and God who knows and controls the future. The second thing we see is the turbulence of earthly kingdoms in verses 5 through 8. As we've already spoken of in Daniel, as we've walked through Daniel, superpowers are not really a safe place to be. When we're talking about governments and kingdoms, they're not safe places. The kingdom that seems great and boasts in its arrogance is the kingdom that is brought down and is unable to be rescued, as we read in our text. You read how the goat comes so swiftly that this amazing, great kingdom represented by the ram is not able to escape from its power. Earthly kingdoms are turbulent. We cannot place our hope in them. You cannot place your hope in governments and in powers to save us and to save the planet. This is the reality of human history. And anyone who tells you different is wrong. Look at how fast God dealt with the Egyptians. Imagine being a part of that and maybe looking at the Egyptians during the time of Moses and thinking, what a great kingdom to be a part of. And look at how fast God decimated Egypt because of their disobedience and because it was part of God's plan. How He stopped God's people from being oppressed. So to expect anything else is crazy. Matthew 24, Jesus says, as the disciples ask Him, when will these times be that you set up your kingdom? And He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. This is going to happen, but it's not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. You and I are supposed to expect this. Why then do we get so agitated? Why do we get so worried when all of a sudden we see what's happening around us? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, natural disasters. Are you afraid? Who is in control? Why do we freak out about it? Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. God has told us this so that he, we will believe when it happens. And we can trust and persist in faith knowing that God holds the key to all wisdom and all knowledge and also holds the power over all of the earthly affairs. And yet, what are we called to do? 
when turbulent times in earthly kingdoms in your country, maybe you were a part of that or you would see us as being a part of that, what are we called to do? 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. How often do you pray for your leaders? I suspect, just like we know that Christians don't pray enough as it is, that we also don't pray enough for our leaders. And what does 1 Timothy 2 say? First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he says what that all people, part of that all people, that subcategory is this in verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for all people. Pray for kings and rulers. Pray for those who are unbelieving. Pray for those who are believing. And pray for those who have positions of authority. Who controls the heart and the actions of the king? Proverbs 21 says it's God who does. Verse 1. So we pray for their salvation. We see God's heart for that in verse 4. His desire for all to be saved. But also... Pray that in God's providence, as, as it says in Timothy, that over both of the believing and the unbelieving, that He would incline their thoughts and their wills and their actions of our rulers who are unbelieving to make decisions that will promote and allow for us to have freedom and peace and the rest of the world so that Christians can go about their ordinary lives and live godly lives and live out their faith. And that's what He calls us to do in turbulent earthly kingdoms. So we need to come to expect difficult times and persecutions for our faith, however light they may be. And we rejoice because in doing so, we get to share in the sufferings of Christ, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Then we come to persistence during persecution in verse 9 through 12. In these verses, we're introduced to a, new, a newer character, a small horn that is raised up during the rule of the goat's kingdom. And this little horn is just that. It's a little horn in God's scale and on God's scale. But this ruler, this little horn, is going to have enormous consequences for God's people. And that's what we're going to see in a moment. And I want to show you the persecution that God reveals to His people that's going to happen to His people and what it's going to look like. The first thing is in verse 10. Persecution that is powerful. It says in verse 10, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. The host of heaven and the stars are a picture of Jewish believers and the priests and those who followed after God. And the enemy was going to be powerful and trample over them and have victory over them. Victory in oppressing them. He would be powerful. There are times in our lives where we feel like this, where the enemy is powerful, where he appears to be great in our lives. And yet you and I wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of darkness, against Satan, not against each other. And we have a powerful enemy who hates us, who hates God. We have a powerful enemy who wants to distract us, who wants to keep us from communing and fellowshipping with God. He wants to keep you out of this place where you gather together with other believers. And if he can't keep you out of here, he will distract you. Ever been distracted when you're praying before? That's not an accident. 
where all of a sudden these random thoughts come to your head. Maybe even as you sit and listen to me speak, you're thinking about other things that need to be done. Distracting us from actually being able to hear God's Word, understand God's Word, apply it, and be encouraged by it, to hear the truth of it, to distract us. He wants to defeat us. He wants to lead us away. We have a powerful enemy. And not only does this person that we read about, the horn, persecute with power, but he's actually coming for God himself. That's what we see in in the next point. Persecution against God himself in verse 11. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. This little horn, this ruler, considered himself to be like God, to be equal with God. He was saying, my gods are greater than your God. And he was going to come against God. And where was he going to attack in verse 11? What does it say? He attacked the place where the burnt offerings were taken, the place of the sanctuary, where God's people went to commune with God. As you know about the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God was worshipped, where they offered sacrifices and where, they, where the presence of God uh, was seen to be dwelling. And, and this particular character was going to attack the temple and desecrate the temple. Not destroy it, but he was attacking the place where God dwelled, signifying an outright attack on God himself. And he was going to take away the regular burnt offering, which the Jews offered twice a day. Morning and evening, they offered this. If you remember, going through Leviticus, they offered those sacrifices, and this was going to be taken away from them. They were not going to be able to make sacrifices to God anymore. And that's a big deal during that time. If you can't all of a sudden commune with God and offer sacrifices for your sins, can you imagine having that break in fellowship? And he was going to do this because he thought that he was worthy to be worshipped, that he was God. This is not just passive, unintentional persecution. This is very specific, very much against God and His people. And it was not just a matter of being indifferent towards God and religion. And so one of the questions you may ask going through all this is why? Why these things? Why this persecution? Why this character? In verse 12, we're given a little bit of light into that, I believe. And it's persecution because of disobedience in verse 12. There are two ways to see disobedience in the text. It's either the disobedience of the little horn or it's the disobedience of God's people. Those are your two options. I understand it to be the disobedience of God's people. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he took Jerusalem, when the, when the Israelites went into captivity. But it would later be rebuilt when the Jews were out of captivity. And the fulfillment of this particular prophecy was much later yet than that after the, after the temple had been rebuilt. And this enemy was going to desecrate the temple, not destroy it, but desecrate it, profane it, dishonor it, make it a place where God was not worshipped, where things were dishonoring to God, where worship of God was not properly going on. And God would not permit his people to worship him in an unworthy manner. Malachi chapter 1 speaks of God's people during this time. It says this, But you say, how have we despised your name? And this is God's answer, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Israel was being disobedient to God. And God sent this little horn, his enemy, to stop the daily sacrifices that were being done in an unworthy manner. 
And this is a normal pattern for the way that God responds and teaches his people as they live disobediently in the Old Testament. They were in captivity for a reason, not just because people didn't like them. This is not to say that every time you and I experience persecution or, or God's chastening, that it is him being mad at us for our sin. In the case of Job, we have a blameless, upright person, one who feared God and turned away from evil, it says in Job. And yet, what did God allow Satan to do to Job? Awful things, right? So much was taken away from Job. And what was revealed about Job in chapter 42? There was pride. And when it was all said and done, he repented in chapter 42 of Job. So might we ask that of ourselves during times that are difficult, when things are difficult for us? Am I trusting in God? Am I fearing God? Am I being obedient to God? Is God trying to shake loose in my life maybe a pattern of living, maybe it's a pattern of thinking that is disobedient to God? Might we ask ourselves that question and those questions? And then we see persecution that is prosperous in verse 12. Let us not forget that he could not have done any of this apart from God's permission for him to do so, this little horn. God's providence put the sword in his hand where he was enabled to bear down on the saints, on God's people. And it is just for God to deprive those of the privileges of his, his house when they despise him and live disobedience, live disobediently rather. And what does it say in our text in verse 12? And it will act and it will prosper. He was going to succeed no matter what fighting against him, he was going to succeed until the time where he wasn't. So in his persecution of God's people, there was prosperous. He was prosperous. And what does it else does it say? He threw truth to the ground in verse 12. He tried to destroy God's word. He will try to destroy God's word, to repress the teachings of Scripture. Has this not been the strategy of Satan since the beginning of time? Did God really say that? And God's word is truth, and we find in it the most important thing that we have because it's God's revelation to us of himself and of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And yet this is what he's going to attack, God's truth. So finally then we come to persistence in uncertainty. For Israel, getting this vision and receiving this vision as Daniel shared it, they certainly would have had some details of what was going to happen, but there was not all of the details given as far as the time and when and what and all of these things, and yet we have some of it here. And what do we see in the text? Verse 13 and 14. Angels are concerned for the prosperity of the church on earth and God's people. Their desire is to see an end to the desolations. What do the angels say? How long? They care about the affairs of men. The question is not why, it's not why do tyrants get to walk all over God's people. The question is, how long do they get to? Have you ever had a bad day? You ever had a really bad day? Do we not ask the same questions that the angels asked when we have these kind of days? How long do I have to stay at this job? How long do I have to remain in this unhealthy relationship? How long do I have to wait for a job since I'm out of work? How long until I know the outcome of this disease? How long? 
Maybe you've asked God that before. In Psalm 13, in four verses, David says, how long? Four times in two verses. This is an experience that is common to all God's children, to all children of faith. How long? And yet the Bible says God is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. There is more going on that you and I can't see. There's more than what meets the eye of what we're seeing. Be strong, wait for the Lord, persist in faith, knowing that God will do what He has promised to do. And Jesus' words to His disciples in the boat in the storm, I don't know if you remember them, and when they say to Jesus, do you, do you care? And He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is right after feeding thousands of people. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith in the one who is in control of all these things? Then they stopped the storm. And they said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And we notice in verse 14, there's a precise calendar to all the events of world history. The angels ask this question, how long? And then he says in verse 14, and he said to me, to Daniel, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. We can and should persist in faith when things seem uncertain because there is an end date. God has an end date in mind. This persecution was going to last for 2,300 days. That's six years and about four months. That would have felt like a long time especially given what he was going to do and the success and the veracity with which this little horn was going to rule. And, and hopefully Pastor Jeff is going to share with us what that all looked like next week. It's going to feel like a long time, but it's limited. And what does God do? His plan is a promise to them in, in the end of it. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Just like God would restore the sanctuary for the Jews, the temple where they would worship, God is restoring us as we trust Him and live by faith. Christ died to cleanse the church, to cleanse us from our sins. Jesus went to the cross and He paid the penalty that you and I couldn't pay for our sin. He died on your behalf and on mine so that we would be righteous before God. So that God would look on us and not respond to our sin in wrath, but He would respond in love. Christ died to clean you and me, to cleanse us. We're not supposed to clean ourselves up and then come to God for acceptance. God did that through Jesus Christ. The whole point of the gospel of God's grace is that you cannot, but Christ has done that for you. That daily you come to Him without having to clean yourself up because of the sacrifice of Christ. And what a glorious truth that is. And that's what we've heard those, those with us this morning testify. That they understood that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. A glorious truth to know that when we place our faith and trust in Him, that Christ cleanses us and saves us from our sin. It's a miracle every single time it happens. Christ died to cleanse us from our sin. So, we can, so that... As Jude says, he will joyfully present us blameless before himself one day in heaven when we're all together with him. And glorious thing that's coming for us to be presented blameless before God as we already have been in Christ, but to be there in heaven and to be a part of that is the promise that we have. So what sustains us from generation to generation? What helps us to persist in our faith and to trust God? Is it not the sovereignty of God? 
over human affairs, and over the world. And you and I will never outgrow our need for the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You do not know when that next bad day is coming. Maybe you're living in it right now. The complete and total sovereignty of God should and will help you to persist in hope. When life is hard, when life is uncertain, know this. God's word was written to give his people hope. Through all the pain and through all the heartache, God's word was written to give us hope. And in that we trust and in that we look to uh, for hope. And so let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for your sovereignty, for the truth as we've read about in Daniel many times and the reminders many times of how you are sovereign over all things, God. When things seem uncertain, when persecution seems powerful, when enemies seem like they are winning for a long time, God, you are powerful and you are over all of those things and all of those things are happening according to your good and perfect wisdom and plan. And God, we struggle with that sometimes, but we ask for your help to trust and to place our faith in those things that you are doing. God, and knowing that even though things may seem difficult for us, there is an end in sight, God, where you are redeeming all of your creation and presenting your creation holy and blameless before your throne, God. And we are so longing and looking for that. And God, we thank you that that is a promise for us who have placed our faith and our trust in you. And so we ask that you'd help us to persist in faith, knowing who you are, knowing what you've said, and knowing that your word is true all the way through. God, we ask for your grace and for your help this morning. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.